What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm your host, John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A decade ago, India bought most of its weapons from Russia. That share has since declined to half, and Western officials would like to see it fall even further. But that is proving much easier said than done. And 60 years ago, New Zealanders worried that Americans would be leery of eating something called a Chinese gooseberry, however good it tasted. So they changed the name to kiwi. Now officials are trying a similar approach with a fish. Fried kopi, anyone? But first... On January 6, 2021, the world saw what happened when a populist president mobilized his supporters and refused to accept the outcome of an election he clearly lost. We're going to walk down to the Capitol and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. We stood by you for months! Let us in! Now fears are growing that the world may soon witness something similar, thousands of miles south, in Brazil. So we know that Jair Bolsonaro does not want to lose this election. Georgia Banjo is a foreign correspondent for The Economist. We know that he is perhaps worried that he might lose this election. And we know that he is most likely considering what he will do if he does lose this election. So right now, polls suggest that he might well lose? Yeah, so the latest polls suggest that if the elections were held tomorrow, he would lose. Obviously, they're not. They're in less than three months' time. But he is not doing as well as he would want to be doing at this point. He is facing the former President Lula, who is a very huge figure in Brazil, And he's had a difficult few years. He's handled the COVID pandemic very badly. At the moment, millions of Brazilians are going hungry. And he is worried about what could happen. And when you say what could happen, do you mean that he just doesn't want to not be president? Or are there other reasons for him to want to hold the presidency? So on the one hand, he's playing up to his supporters what could happen if he loses. So his supporters say there will be an apocalypse if he loses the election, if Lula comes back to power. Bolsonaro himself has said that Brazil would become another Venezuela if Lula comes back. But it seems really that his real concern about losing the election is that it would open him and his sons up to criminal prosecution and loads of lawsuits. And that's obviously 
a big motivation for him to win the next election or to stay in power. Lawsuits and criminal prosecution for doing what? (laughs) Well, there's many. So for the president, some of these are related to the COVID pandemic and his handling of that. Others are to do with misuse of funds while in office. And then his sons, who are also in politics, are facing lots of charges, pending cases, archived cases in Rio de Janeiro, where they are active. Clearly, all of them deny these allegations. The president has said that he's not guilty of any wrongdoing. But this is something that probably would be taken further were he to lose office. And is there a concern that if he does, in fact, lose office, that he tries to do something similar to what Donald Trump did, not accept the results, try to get the results overturned? Yeah, so obviously, first of all, he's trying to win the elections. So Congress has just passed a constitutional amendment, which will allow the president to bypass electoral spending laws. He's going to use that money to up welfare programs, to give money and aid to truckers and taxi drivers who've been hit by rising fuel prices. But if these efforts don't succeed, then yes, there's a big possibility that he will try something like his idol, Donald Trump. He's been telling his supporters for a long time now that the only way he will lose these elections is if there is fraud. He has said that the electoral process is rigged. He has criticised the people involved in the process. And this all suggests that he will dispute the results if he loses. And take us through that in more detail. Dispute the results, challenge the results. What would that look like? So if he were to lose, there's a couple of ways that he could dispute the results legally. So the main thing that he needs to do is to get the superior electoral court, who are responsible for everything to do with presidential elections in Brazil, he needs them to open a formal investigation. So the most serious action that he could bring to this court is to challenge an electoral mandate. And basically what this means is whoever wins the election is then should be taking office on January the 1st. But before then, if he can find evidence that there's been an economic abuse, so misusing campaign funds or illegal spending, if he could find evidence of corruption, so vote buying, for example, or evidence of fraud, if he could find enough evidence for that, then it's possible that he could get this formal investigation launched And then that could ultimately be a way for him to challenge the result and for the winner to have their mandate revoked. Have their mandate revoked means reinstall him into office? Well, no. I mean, then it all gets very complicated. This has never happened before in Brazilian history. But basically, the most likely outcome would be there'd be a rerun of the elections. What do you think the chances are that he's actually able to do that to get them to launch an investigation? Realistically, the chances aren't very high from what I've heard from legal experts. Basically, the court would not nullify the results without incredibly strong evidence of wrongdoing. And at the same time, it should also be noted that Bolsonaro has also been waging war with these judges for the past few years, threatening justices in the Supreme Court. He threatened to throw one in a bin, for example. He has been undermining judicial authority at every turn, and he has suggested that They even know the results of the election and that they possibly are biased in favor of Lula. And so if that doesn't happen, if the court doesn't overturn it, what then? Is there a chance that he could inspire the sort of violent protest that we saw in America on January 6th? So that's the big fear in Brazil right now, particularly amongst people on the left, people in the media. 
It's really difficult, obviously, to speculate what could happen, but since Bolsonaro and many of his allies have said that they will challenge the results of the election, since he has said that he's been inspired by Trump, it's possible to assume that they might try some sort of January 6th in Brazil. There's also a slightly different history in Brazil as well, which is that until 1985, Brazil was a military dictatorship. Bolsonaro is a former captain in the Brazilian army. There are some on the right, including President Bolsonaro, who think that the military dictatorship was generally a good thing for Brazil. So there are some concerns that we could have some sort of intervention from the armed forces, from the military police, if Bolsonaro were to lose. I think that seems unlikely that we'd have a full-on coup. A lot has changed since the last time that happened. The world is a very different place. But the fact that we're having these discussions and the fact that Brazilians are worried about it is enough, I guess, to cause some concern. And many international observers, many people in America, for example, have been concerned about that prospect. All right. Well, we will watch carefully and we'll hope to have you back before October to look at this further. Thank you so much for stopping by today. Thanks, John. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. When members of the Quad the security partnership of Australia, Japan, India, and the United States met in May. They committed to maintaining peace in the Indo-Pacific region. And Prime Minister Modi, it's wonderful to see you again in person. The, uh, thank you for your continuing commitment to making sure democracies deliver. On the sidelines of that meeting, America's president, Joe Biden, met with Narendra Modi, India's prime minister. They discussed defense and the thorny topic of weaponry. India has long bought much of its gear from Russia. But if India's Western allies get their way, that reliance could soon be about to end. Well, the United States and other Western countries have been very concerned by India's reluctance to condemn Russia over the invasion of Ukraine. And they're also hoping for a greater degree of Indian help in confronting China. Jeremy Page is The Economist's Asia Diplomatic Editor. One of the issues that they want to tackle in the relationship with India is trying to sort of wean it off its long dependence on Russian arms imports. So give us some background here. How dependent is India on, on Russian weaponry? Russia and India have a very close relationship going back to the sort of early 1950s. So the Soviet Union provided a lot of economic assistance and aid to India, but also started supplying weapons early on after India's independence. And that relationship continued after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. They now talk about having a special and privileged strategic partnership. And the defense component is really core to the relationship now. 
in the last few years, India has become not just the world's biggest importer of weapons, but they've also been Russia's biggest foreign buyer of weaponry. So now roughly 50% of India's arms imports come from Russia. That includes things like submarines, tanks, fighter aircraft, and sophisticated surface-to-air missiles. That proportion has been going down over the last few years, to be fair, because India has been trying to diversify its sources of arms imports. But you mentioned that the dynamic is starting to change, that they're starting to import comparatively less from Russia. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, that's right. Over the last decade or so, India has been trying to move away from Russia or perhaps more accurately, just to diversify its arms supplies. It's been buying a bit more from the United States as relations with Washington have improved. But it's also been buying a lot more from France, from Israel, because it doesn't want to become too dependent on the United States either. The other thing that's changed in the last few years is that India has grown a lot more concerned about China, especially since these bloody border clashes a couple of years ago, which were the worst since war over that same border between India and China back in 1962. So that has really piqued concerns, especially within the Indian military, about their need for more modern equipment. And then if you fast forward to you know, the last few weeks, they've grown slightly concerned in looking at the performance of some Russian weaponry in Ukraine and perhaps realize that they need to look for better equipment. So, Jeremy, it sounds as though there's a window of opportunity for Western firms, but, but you mentioned that India and Russia have a long-standing relationship. Does the West have any similar sort of relationship around defense, weapons procurement, weapons development to, to build on? Yes, a lot of people on all sides feel there is a, a window of opportunity here. So what India would really like to do is produce more of its own weaponry and would like Western defense manufacturers to play a much bigger role in joint development and production of weapons in India. And there are some precedents for this going back, in some cases, decades. But it's a bit of a mixed picture. A lot of people in the industry point to one slightly sort of unfortunate precedent, which is that of the Tejas fighter jet, which was approved back in 1983 by Indira Gandhi, who was then the prime minister, and it was supposed to replace these aging Soviet-made MiGs. And a couple of years after it was approved, her son Rajiv, when he was prime minister, he went to the United States and persuaded Ronald Reagan to provide technology to help in developing this fighter jet. And the Americans saw an opportunity at that point to erode Soviet influence in India. And so they actually offered a whole lot of other assistance as well and ended up supplying engines for this new Indian fighter jet. But this Indian fighter jet only entered service in 2016, which was about two decades later than originally planned. And India's Navy actually cancelled its order for the aircraft when it found that they were too heavy to take off when fully fueled and armed from aircraft carriers. So is that a telling example? Was that a one-off problem or is it indicative of deeper issues within India's defense sector? So I think it's a fairly extreme example, but there are still some problems that afflicted the Tejas fighter program, which are still prevalent today and cited as, as major concerns by people in Western defense companies in particular. One of the main problems that they often cite is that the Indian defense industry is still very much dominated by these small number of large state-owned giants, such as 
company called Hindustan Aeronautics Limited, which is the company that produced this Indian fighter jet. Technically, the Indian defence industry was opened up to private investment in 2001, but in reality, it still remains very much dominated by those state-owned players. And private Indian and Western companies often complain there's a lot of corruption in the defence industry and the procurement system and a very cumbersome procurement process, which makes it very hard for them to sort of plan for the future and make big investments. There's also a slight concern on the Western side that some of these Indian defence manufacturers have relationships with Russia going back many decades and indeed do joint production with Russian weapons companies. So there are concerns that some of their technology might end up inadvertently or intentionally being transferred to Russia. So do you expect that India and the West will develop a close relationship when it comes to weaponry? There's more change in the air than there has been in a long time. There seems to be some momentum towards a greater collaboration in this area of weapons development and production between India and the West. Lockheed Martin, a big American defense contractor last year, approved the manufacture of wings for its F-16 fighter jets by its joint venture with Tata, Tata being a big Indian conglomerate. And Lockheed has also promised to produce a more advanced fighter jet, which is calling the F-21 in India, provided it wins a big contract estimated at multi-billions dollars to supply 114 fighter jets. But you need a big deal really to provide the sort of the incentives for the Western manufacturers to make the big investments, for the Western governments to give approval for the technology transfer and to help resolve some of the shortages that the Indian military is facing. And you need it really to establish a greater degree of trust, I think, between India and the West. So a big sort of headline-grabbing deal like this one for the fighter jets would be a good way to do that. All right, Jeremy, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. Having just fallen in love with someone who has the wrong last name, Juliet Capulet reflects that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And you know, she's right. A rose's scent would be exactly the same if we decided to call the flower a a blorp or a nurkle. But would as many people buy them? In the American Midwest, some people are pondering this exact question of nomenclature in regards to an invasive species of fish. So I'll admit, I actually haven't eaten an Asian carp, but from what I've heard, they can be filleted, doused in batter and deep fried, and they can be minced into fish cakes. Um, The only thing is that they're quite bony. Kenneth Werner is the Economist's U.S. news desk editor. They're nutritious, they're really kind of delicate in flavor and have a nice mild taste. But in general, Americans don't really eat much Asian carp. They tend to confuse Asian carp with the common carp which originated in Europe, and that's a bottom feeder, so it's got a kind of much fishier taste in contrast with Asian carp. Yeah, I thought of the European carp when you first mentioned it, which which has a muddy taste. I understand this one doesn't, but what is the Asian carp doing in America in the first place? So Asian carp were initially brought to America in the 1970s to 
catfish farms, they eat plankton and algae. They're called filter feeders. So the idea is that they would clean the water. But the thing is, they escaped into the Mississippi River, and their population has just exploded exponentially. And now there's a concern that they could bypass some of these barriers in man-made canals and waterways around Chicago and enter the Great Lakes. And if they do that, that poses biodiversity issue because they have displaced some native fish species. One plan they've come up with to reduce numbers of Asian carp is to get more people to eat them. How is that plan working? How do they want it to work? This is an idea that the Illinois Department of Natural Resources has. And in 2018, they commissioned a big study and they produced a report that said, if we could rebrand the carp and kind of give it a new name and recast the image that American diners have of it, that could go some way in doing that. Um, And so they commissioned a marketing agency to look into this and to kind of develop a new brand for the carp to rename it. And um, last month, that new name was launched. And what is the new name? The name is Kopi, so it's C-O-P-I, and it's short for Copious. I talked to Nick Adam of SPAN, that's the agency that did the rebrand, and he said that through the market research, they found that most Americans thought of Asian carp as kind of this adventurous eating choice, and they really wanted to shed that image. They wanted to make it kind of approachable. In their kind of focus group testing, they found that Kopi was thought of as kind of a cute name and, and a manageable name for diners. Do you think the rebranding will work? Is there, is there any precedent for renaming a species that people are averse to and getting people to eat it? Yes, this has definitely happened before, especially with fish. What we in America know is Chilean sea bass. The real name for it is actually Patagonian toothfish. And um, it was renamed when it was introduced to America there have been some other um, instances of this, too. The, the Slimehead was renamed in the 1970s the Orange Ruffy, because Slimehead just sounds a little gross. And if this rebrand did work, would eating an invasive species make a difference in its numbers? The short answer is not really, because the fish that humans eat are kind of larger fish, and in order to really control the size of the population, you would need to reduce the numbers of small and medium-sized fish as well. There were some researchers at Michigan State University who a a few years ago looked into this and they said that really in order to kind of reduce the population sizes, you need to offer incentives to um, fishermen to go after small and and medium-sized fish. There's also a concern among some environmentalists that encouraging demand for a species like this actually will then create a market So if eating invasive species wouldn't make a difference, what would? Um, So you'd have to really go after all sizes of the fish because the problem with eating an invasive species and kind of harvesting it for human consumption is the fact that fishermen will then naturally go after larger fish, which are the fish that humans want to eat. So you'd have to really go for all sizes. So a few years ago, researchers at Michigan State University suggested offering incentives to target those smaller sizes to be used in fertilizer and fish meal. Ultimately, what will matter is whether diners take to Kopi, but also whether these smaller and medium-sized fish are caught too. All right, Kenneth, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. We'll see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.